I'd like to begin with the gospel this weekend without drawing too tightly the thread that runs through these texts. I, I do want to attend to themes that orbit around love of enemies and doing right by those who have wronged us. I'm in Kirkland, Washington, giving a series of lectures here at Northwest University on theology and the arts. And the first night I was here, I guess it was two nights ago, went to dinner with some friends from the area. And in the course of the conversation, we just stumbled into a story about some things that have happened. And I found out what they all thought I already knew about someone who had really undermined me, worked behind the scenes to to subvert me and to, well, it's caused trouble for me, I mean, to put it bluntly. And, of course, it made me angry, and I, there was a, there was a lot I had to process in, in the aftermath. So when I came to these texts, of course, it's that most recent experience that rises up in, in my heart. So what I'm going to share today from these texts is you need to hear it against that background, the background of I'm thinking about a case in which someone you you think is your friend turns out to have your harm in mind, turns out not to be the friend you thought they were. And so I no need to say more about that. But I, I think it's important to kind of background what I'm saying today with, you know, this is personal for me, and, and it's personal for all of us, right? And this is just the most recent, the, the freshest wound. But this, you, you can't be human, right? You can't live in family. You can't live in friendships. You can't work with others and live and move and have your being in this world without wronging and being wronged. And so these, what we're going to hear today, it's essential to all of our lives, obviously. So Jesus, the, the passage opens, Jesus is saying, this is, of course, from Jesus' sermon on the plain, the level place, as Luke calls it. Jesus says, I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So it can be translated in different ways, of course, but I love this translation, I say to you that listen. And what I hear in that line is that when Jesus, because it is the word of God, because it is the word that creates our being and orients our being toward the truth, toward the fullness of life that's meant for us, when Jesus speaks, it here it impacts or it bears upon those who are listening in one way and those who are not listening in another way. Right? So we all hear it in a sense. But we're not all listening to it. And if we're not listening, then the word of God bears on us in a way that leads to death. It leads to judgment. If we are listening, it leads to life. It leads to, to blessing. So cursing and blessing, death and life. But of course, in Christ, blessing and cursing are one, and life comes through death. So there's good news even for those who are not listening. The word of God is no less graceful to those who are not listening than it is to those who are listening. But the grace is received differently and therefore acts upon them differently. And I, I think if we use the image from the text last time, 
when we're not listening, the word of God is salty. It, it, it burns. It destroys. It chokes out all the lies that are sustaining our illusions. But when we are listening, the word of God is light. It illuminates. It clarifies. It provides warmth. It gathers us into intimacy. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> forgive me <clears throat> for that. My, I'm going to clear my throat. So I, I think it's it's a there's good news in it, right? Either way, whether you're listening or not. But if you do listen, then you receive the word of God as light, and it illuminates your next steps. It illuminates what what is to come for you. Jesus says then, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So of course he's assuming they do have enemies. He has he, th that we all have people in our lives who for whatever reason do not want our good. At least they don't always want our good. And you know, without creating a taxonomy, I think we have people who are extremely have extreme animus for us, right? Who are who are anim who are have animosity toward us at all times, and the animosity they have is is severe, right? That they they want our destruction, but I think that's pretty rare. I mean, <laughs> I hope it is, but I think a lot of us have people who are our sometimes enemies and whose animosity toward us is rev is fairly mild. You know, they don't damn us to hell, but they, they do kind of swear at us when we're not listening. And I, I think this, this tends to be the case, especially with those people who live closest with us, the, the people we call family. We, we love one another, and we are also in enmity with one another, at least sometimes, at least on some fronts, at least to some degree. So when, when Jesus talks about your enemies here, I think, of course, he's, he's talking about those who are always only our enemies and those also who are our sometimes friends and sometimes enemies. Those enemies that we know about and those enemies we don't know about. And I think in a mystical way, he's also talking about the enemies that are within us, the, the, the ways we've internalized the image of others and our image of ourselves. And we're set at enmity with ourselves, right? So sometimes you know, there are ways in which I imagine someone to be my enemy when they in fact are not. But because I imagine, because I'm convinced that they are in fact against me, I misread what they're doing. And it affects me as an attack, whether they are attacking me or not, and so on. Right? So love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. In the circles that I've lived in, when we hear this line, love your enemies, we, we hear a statement about feeling. Have affection for your enemies. And, and don't, mostly we hear, don't hold to feelings of spite or resentment toward your enemies. Well, Jesus is not prohibiting anger here. In fact, Jesus himself is angry, often, as all the prophets are. And, and to love well is to know anger, to know the anger of the Lord, to know, to know holy anger, and to know what anger can and can't do. Right? I mean, there's a, there's a way in which, let me see if I can find this quickly. 
I made some notes about anger a few years ago when I was trying to think through this this problem of what what does it mean to be angry in a righteous way, righteous anger. And here, here are some of the lines that I jotted down. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God, of course, which is a, a line from Scripture. I'm not plagiarizing. I'm quoting it here. But I said, God's righteousness yields holy anger in us. God's righteousness yields holy anger in us. Anger for wrongs we've done and anger for wrongs done to us. Even more for wrongs done by the powerful against the powerless in our name. We, we, and this, I think, is the anger that you often see in Israel's prophets and, of course, in Jesus. Anger on behalf of those who have been done wrong. The, I was thinking about this just yesterday, not this passage, but the so-called cancel culture that we live in. It's it's one thing if I if I call for you to be canceled because you've made me angry, you've hurt me by something you've said about me. That's one thing. It's something else if I'm calling you to account because of a way in which you've wronged someone else, especially someone truly vulnerable. If I'm angry on their behalf and and whose behalf I'm angry on, I think those things make all the difference. So it's not just how intense my anger is or the the feeling of anger itself, but but the source of it, like what angers me. And the anger has to arise not from the quote unquote flesh, but from the spirit. And I, I do think of course that there's still all kinds of questions that have to be answered there. But there is a holy anger. There is an anger that comes from the spirit. And even though I would say anger is not a fruit of the spirit, anger is one of the ways in which the spirit's fruit is brought to life in us, right? That you, you cannot, the fruit of the spirit, for instance, is gentleness and patience, but that gentleness and patience are possible only for people who are rightly angry, but do not want that just anger to be, to disease into something unjust, into something destructive. So there, there's this, you, you can't be hungry and thirsty for justice without ang- anger at injustice. And so I, I think we might say it like this, blessed are the angry, for they shall see the wrath of God. <clears throat> but we can't stop there, right? Blessed are the angry, for they shall see the wrath of God. But, but don't stop there. Because, again, the wrath of human beings does not work the righteousness of God. Even God's wrath does not work God's righteousness. This is, you know, a much harder truth. We we have to be angry and not sin. I mean, that's the line we all know from Paul. But there are times, that, and that's always true, we have to always hold our anger in ways that do not wrong others. Ourselves, but at times we have to be angry, or we will have sinned. If we are not angry, we have sinned. At times, even if it's wicked, though, even even if it's wicked not to be angered by wrongs done, we have to realize our anger itself does not set those wrongs right. Right. So even even if I'm rightly angry, my anger will not right what I'm angry about. 
at best, it can clear the ground. Again, anger is not a fruit of the spirit. Anger can clear the ground for that for the the tree to flourish. It can clear away the tares so the wheat can breathe, but anger is not going to bring about the justice of God. Blessed are those who have been righteously angry, therefore, for they shall no longer trust in their anger. Blessed are those who have been righteously angry, for they shall no longer trust in their anger. So, perhaps what matters most is that we learn how to be angered without living angrily. How can I allow the Spirit to stir up anger in me, holy anger, righteous anger, without living in anger? without being an angry person, without anger becoming a dominant energy in my life. And I think that might, these are, again, notes that I scribbled down. They're not systematic by any means. Perhaps we need to learn to be mad in the, in the old sense of mad, mad as God and mad with God, wrestling with God, angry toward God, but also angry in the way that God is angry and angry as God is angry. Like while God's anger is being carried out, we are sharing in that. And, 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 and when we understand God's anger rightly, we understand God's not moody, right? God's not like carried away by a sudden feeling. God's anger is seeing rightly the wrongs that are done and being moved to answer them, being moved to write them, to write those wrongs that have been done. So our complaints against injustice should lead us into the presence of God, should lead us to the face of God as the one who answers for all of this and who has promised to set it right. We cannot praise God for the good that comes if we are not willing to confront him with the blame for the bad. Right? Like, and we're deceiving ourselves if we think everything that happens to me that I like, I praise God for. Everything that happens to me that I don't like, I blame the devil for and move on. Like, there has to be the kind of openness in our relationship with God in which we say to God, I'm grateful for this, and I don't like this. And, and both the praise and the complaint are, are held in trust, are held in the presence of God, trusting that when God has done God's will, when God's will is fully done on earth as it is in heaven, then the wrongs will be righted. The truth will out in the best sense. So we have to learn godly anger, but we can only do that if we are willing to risk anger with God, right? in prayer, struggling with God. And so blessed are those who have been angry with God, for they shall be saved from anger. And I think that's at least a way of kind of beginning to think about what it does and doesn't mean to be angry toward your enemies. But in, in the passage at hand, Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to them, right? So he's, he's not talking primarily here about feeling. Although I think, of course, to be human is to feel, and there's no, there's no use in trying to make some kind of arbitrary distinction between emotion and reason or feeling and rationality that might be interesting in an undergraduate course on philosophy but it's not going to hold up in lived life in any way so when we talk about your love your enemy love your enemies we are 
assuming that there are all kinds of feelings swirling in us, some good and some not so good, and a lot of them, of course, entangled, maybe all of them entangled. But Jesus is clearly calling us to treat our enemies in ways that bring about God's good in their lives. Do good to those who hate you. What kind of good? Blessing. What is blessing? What you're asking God to do. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Right. So what you're, the good you're doing in their lives. And of course, you know, this might be shoveling snow in their driveway. It might be contributing to their, to their cause. It might be a kind word, you know, a, an email or, a, or a note dropped over the holidays. It might, it might be something you do not do, right? It might be biting your tongue and not saying what you want to say. Who knows, right? There are all kinds of ways in which you can do good to people. But ultimately, what Jesus is calling us here to do is to pray for them and to live toward them in such a way that the blessing of God can come to bear on their lives. And as I said, if they're listening for the grace of God, then that will be light to them. And as they are illuminated, they will see what they've done wrong and make it right. Sooner or later, they will see. I've wronged this person, and I want to make it right. If they're not listening, then the love of God will salt their lives, and the lives that are that are deluding them will eventually be choked out, will eventually be destroyed. And in their new freedom, then they will begin to listen. And as they listen, they will be brought to the light, and they will come to you. And I think that's, that's part of what we hope for at the last judgment, is the chance for all wrongs to be righted. And including the wrongs we've done to them, right? Including the ways in which we we have forgotten or ignored wrongs we've done to others. And the light of the presence of God, that is the last judgment, illuminates all of those wrongs and enables us to right them. So then, then Jesus says, do to others as you would have them do to you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And of course, this can be heard in a kind of banal or cliched sense. But if, if we pay attention to what Jesus is calling us to, I think, do to others you would have them do to you. There's a, there's a kind of transformation that happens when, when you think about someone who's wronged you. And of course, there are all different types of wrongs, more or less severe, more or less traumatic. So we have to be careful talking in generalities. But if you think of someone who's wronged you, if you had done that wrong to others, what would you hope for for yourself? And and what you would hope for there says everything about how healthy you are, how mature you are, how godly you are. But you have to be who you are at the moment, right? That's the only. There, there are no other options, right? You have to be who you are now, here. As you live toward the light, as you live toward the, the, the fullness, the flourishing that God means for you. And so I think this do to others you would have them do to you should be changing throughout your life. So what I would have done at 20 to someone who wronged me, I, I shouldn't do when I'm 25 or 30. And what I do to my children or my my wife, when they wrong me, can't be the same when they're babies as, well, I don't know if a baby can wrong you, but yeah, children versus 
when they're adults and vice versa. Like if, if my kids are, have been wronged by me, and of course they have, then their response to me is different from what it would be to their own children or to their friends. Right. So we have, we have to make, of course, Jesus is, is more than aware of all of those distinctions. And we, we don't want to hear him here. If, if we hear him in some kind of flat cliched, platitudinal sense we're, we're completely mishearing the wisdom that he's giving us here and unfortunately a lot a lot of what we've said about jesus and his teaching does reduce it to cliche it does reduce it to simplicities and ignores the kind of incredibly complex topography of human life right and you're you're misreading at that point so One more thing from the gospel, and then I'll turn to the other text. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. Now, again, this is not a case of tit for tat, right? This is not Jesus saying, if you're good, God will reward you for being good. It's to say that the the grace you receive is always directly related to the graciousness with which you live. And that runs in both directions. As God's grace is coming to your life, you mysteriously decide for it or against it. And, And the reasons for your decision are, of course, unbelievably complex and at their roots are not just complex but mysterious but the the truth is the grace of god is always impinging on your life and mine it's always pressing in god is always speaking but i'm not always listening grace is always being poured out but i'm not always open to it and the measure of my openness to god the grace that's coming to me is is made by the grace that I'm showing to others, even though the grace I'm showing to others is already itself made possible by the grace that's been given to me. So that what's what's intended to happen is for my life to open up so completely that it is in the give and take of grace, just as Jesus is in the give and take of the triune life of the Father, the Spirit's, the flow of love that is the life of God. So that's that's the way that we're meant to, a, a kind of virtuous cycle of I receive the grace of God in fullness as I fully pour my life out for others. And there's no, I mean, this is a, a kind of chicken and the egg relationship, right? That I I am able to receive the forgiveness that others offer to me only if I'm a forgiving person, but I'm a forgiving person only because I've received forgiveness from others, right? And they're, that that kind of virtuous circularity is the movement of the life of God. All right, so to the other text quickly. I'm going to s- just a couple of things about the Genesis text. I, I'm so struck by Joseph saying to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And then the, their response, his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. 
So I think this story, like, and, and the way, and not just the story, but the way the story is told is so illuminating in, in terms of how God's grace works in our lives with and against our anger toward the justice God desires for us. So first that Joseph names himself and, you know, I am Joseph being able to name yourself in the presence of those who wronged you. That's maturity. That's healing. I am Joseph. And it is accusation in a sense. I mean, he is letting them know <laughs> I, I am the one you wronged. I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, but I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And again, that that's a double-edged sword. It's double-edged in exactly the way the word of God is double-edged. It is law and grace. It is judgment and mercy. It is it is judgment and mercy. It is wrath, and it is consolation. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. I mean, so the, the pain they should feel in that moment is we sold our brother into Egypt, and yet they should also the 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 sting of that cut is immediately is immediately and at, not just immediately but at the same time salved with. I'm still your brother. Even though you sold me into Egypt, I'm your brother. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. And I think that circling back on what I was saying earlier, there's so much about like being an angry person is about anger with yourself, not about anger. You know, I'm neither a psychologist nor the son of a psychologist, but that seems to me to have been true like, like in, in, in my own life and the life of people that, have been around me that when when you cannot be freed from anger, it's not primarily angry with anger with others, although it often expresses itself in angry outbursts. It's actual anger with yourself, and that anger with themselves, right, is anger at the fact that they have wronged their brother. Right? The, the 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 root of their anger is the guilt and shame they feel for what they did wrong that they have not been able to make right. So when he, when he names himself in their presence, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? His brothers can't answer him because they're dismayed at his presence. And of course, there's, there's a sense of tragedy there. This should be a moment of joy, but of course, it can't be a moment of joy until there is a moment of, of sorrow. There can't be resurrection until there is crucifixion. There can't be light until there is salt. And so... Joseph names himself, his brothers are dismayed, but then he calls them closer, come closer to me. And again, you got to be so careful with generalities here because each particular case is what it is. It's nothing else. But I, in this particular story, I think the time had come for reconciliation to begin. And, and you can't rush forgiveness. You can't rush reconciliation. But when the time is right, when the salty word has been spoken, when the word of judgment has been spoken, then, then the word of mercy can become possible. And the word of mercy is a, is a word of calling close, come closer to me, come closer to me. And they came closer. And in, in that closing of the gap that had opened up between them because of their wrong. So they, they've opened up this chasm, the, the chasm of hell, between 
them, their own lives, their father's life, and Joseph. It starts to close as Joseph names himself in their presence and welcomes them. And of course, he's the one seeking reconciliation, not them. And he's the one who's going to not only bring about their reconciliation to him, but also their reconciliation to themselves. They're, they're going to be freed of that, of that anger with themselves that's rooted in the shame they have rightfully. I mean, I know that in one sense, shame is, is something we don't want any part of, but whatever name we give it, that kind of rightful recognition that we've done a wrong we have not righted. And that since the, the, the down, the, the falling of our countenance, when we know that we have truly, in fact, failed to be who we are called to be to our kids, to our spouses, to our friends, to the people we pastor, to our neighbors. And that will express itself in anger. And it's only as we are drawn closer to God, as the God who, whom we have wronged says, come close to me, that we begin to learn how to be reconciled to ourselves. So with that said, to the psalm, and then I'm done. Do not fret yourself because of evildoers. Do not be jealous of those who do wrong, for they shall soon wither like the grass, and like the green grass fade away. Put your trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on its riches. Take delight in the Lord, and he shall give you your heart's desire. Commit your way to the Lord and put your trust in him, and he will bring it to pass. He will make your righteousness as clear as the light and your just dealing as the noonday. So there's that image of kind of moving toward the light. But still, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret yourself over the one who prospers, the one who succeeds in evil schemes. Refrain from anger. Leave rage alone. Do not fret yourself. It leads only to evil, for evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait upon the Lord shall possess the land. In a little while the wicked shall be no more. You shall search out their place, but they will not be there. But the lowly shall possess the land. They will delight in abundance of peace. But the deliverance of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord will help them and rescue them. He will rescue them from the wicked and deliver them, because they seek refuge in him. Astounding wisdom here, the wisdom of Jesus. And first, this this point, this note of fretting: do not fret, do not fret. And I mean, I, I talk about it all the time because I think it is a dominant factor in our lives, and that is the experience of being online, the the, the social media, the impact of social media on our life. I think it's hard to overstate, and. It's, of course, not the only factor, but it is a it is a an, an astoundingly effective way of disrupting our internal lives. And it's it's not only that. I mean, there obviously there are other ways in which it makes connections possible that otherwise wouldn't be possible. So this is not me weighing in on on the kind of rightness or wrongness of, of being online. It's just to say that it being online does in fact stir up fretting in a way that of course this you know this psalm was written thousands of years ago and the wisdom the warning against fret fretting is you know, as is, is far more ancient 
them even this text. So it's not as if, you know, suddenly we are now fretting. But I, but I do think there's a way in which I mean, we live now, we live here, and under the conditions of life as we know it, it's almost impossible not to fret. So there's not only like, you know, Jesus, do not worry about tomorrow, but the worry about tomorrow, how you're going to pay your bills, how you're going to move into the future that you want for yourself and you want for your family, you want for your neighbors, like you you won't be able to see free yourself from that worry if you can't free yourself from the threat of those who are doing wrong, doing wrong to you and doing wrong to others. And, and so there's a way in which there's a kind of fretting of moralism, you know, a kind of purity culture fretting in which you're, you're wringing your hands about wrongs that aren't really wrongs. But here in the Psalm, I think the point is these are real wrongs. The, the evil that is being done is in fact evil and it is in fact being done. But you can't fret yourself about it. And you can't fret that those who do wrong are prospering in some way, that success is coming to those who are living by evil schemes. You, you cannot let yourself be troubled by that in a way that takes you out of the delight of the Lord. So you're recognizing it as evil. You, you, you're not naive. You're not, you're not precious about the fact that the world is broken and that the world in its brokenness can be worked in ways that bring about success and prosperity and power for for people who live by evil schemes. You cannot let the truth of that, the reality of that, dislodge you from delight in your closeness with your family, your friends, with the Lord. That's when you are given your heart's desire, right? So that the desires that are being formed in you run counter. It's the cross beam on the cross. They run counter against the grain of the desires that are awakened in you by the way this broken world works. Then you can dwell in the land and feed on its riches, dwelling in the land that is the word of the Lord, that is the life the Lord has made possible for you. And, and taking delight in the Lord is impossible without being still before the Lord. And this, this kind of call to contemplation and meditation, silence in the presence of God. And so, you know, beginning of these talks, I was talking about being noisy with God, being angry with God. And I do think that lament, protest, complaint, accusation in the presence of God, that, that kind of messy, sweaty confrontation with God is a part of prayer. But so is silence. So is quietness. In, in the language of Isaiah, in quieting yourself down, your deliverance will come. And so be still before the Lord. Take delight in the Lord. Be patient with the Lord. There's a terrific book Thomas Alik has on patience with God, like learning to be patient with God. That is also the process of being patient with yourself and being patient with others. And it's in the process of learning to be patient with God, yourself, and others, that you you start to learn how to be angry without sinning, to be angry as Jesus is angry, to be angry in ways that clear the ground for the work of God to take place. So you have to, when, when the psalm tells us to refrain from anger and leave rage alone, it's specifically anger driven by the success of those who live by evil schemes. Right, so there, there's a way in which if I'm angry about 
the damage done to the lives of the innocent, the lives of the vulnerable, because of those who live by evil schemes. That's one thing. If I'm angry because the world is broken and evil works, that's another thing. If I'm angry because I'm jealous for the success, I lust for the success that the evil schemes have brought about for others, and I'm angry that I'm not experiencing that same success, even though I, sh even though I'm better than those people because I don't live by evil schemes, that kind of anger is, is a is a tell, and it leads to rage, and I need to leave rage alone. Do not fret yourself. It leads only to evil. So there, there's a way in which, even if the anger itself is not evil, the rage is not evil, the fretting is not evil, it leads to evil. And so you've got to, you've got to leave it alone. And then the, the word is, the evildoers will be cut off. They will be cut off, meaning that they will lose their place in the land. They will lose their place in the land. You will search out their place and they will not be there. The wicked shall be no more. That that's the promise here, and of course that that needs to be heard as good news, as gospel. The wickedness that is in me will be no more. The wickedness that has created the gap between me and my brothers will be no more. The the, the gap that has separated me from my fathers will be no more. Like that that is the promise of God. That God does that in His own time and. Now we're back to being patience, patient and patience with, with the Lord in the Lord's care. The Lord will help them and rescue them. He will rescue them from the wicked and deliver them because they seek refuge. So this, how does God rescue us? I think we need to think in terms of layers here or, or degrees. God rescues us, but sometimes the rescue does not mean the wrong is not done to us, but that the wrong does not deal a death blow to us. Sometimes it means that we are protected, altogether protected from the wrong. Sometimes it means that not only are we wronged, and not only is the wrong a death blow, but we are carried down with Christ in, into death and in, into seeming God forsakenness. Yet even there, God is the God who raises the dead. God is the God who, who calls into being those things that are not. So whether we're entirely protected from a wrong, whether we are protected from the damage the wrong might have done to us, or protected at least from some of the damage the wrong might have done to us, or whether we are raised from the dead in, after the damage that has been done to us because of the wrong that has been done to us, God does rescue us. And and will continue to. And I, I think I don't want to belabor the point. I think you probably see it already. But I, I do think we have to be careful here not to leave people the impression that God will always keep us from suffering the wrongs others are doing to us. That's clearly not true. Right? But it's also not true that God will always keep us from experiencing the damage that others are doing to us and the wrongs they do to us. It is true, however, that we will never be left to that damage, that we will never be left to those wrongs and left to the wicked who do the wrongs and the damage. We, we will know life. And that 
that eschatological hope, that hope that death is not the end, Christ is the end, is, is what holds us together. And that, and I'm not going to say much about it, but that's what connects us to the, the New Testament reading. This, res, this passage about resurrection, having borne the image of Christ, we will bear the image of the man of heaven. Having borne the image of Adam, we will bear the image of Christ. Having borne the image of the man of dust, will bear the image of the man of heaven. And what that means is what is promised to us nothing is nothing less than becoming the kind of presence, becoming the kind of person who's not only alive, but life-giving and life-giving in the same way that Jesus is life-giving. And that, I think, is what we have to hope for.